Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hi guys, uh, today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 8, and then from verse 50 to 58. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you have taken a stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I'll pray for Jez as he comes up. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for today. Thank you that we serve a risen King. And I thank you for the word that we're about to hear. I pray that you open our hearts and you bless Jez and you bless us as well. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Mimi, for reading. Wonderful to be here. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. Sounds like this is working, which is quite a relief, because I was holding my two-year-old for lots of the singing, and he was grabbing at it and kicking at the, the side, but it seems to have survived his toddler attentions. I know a few nods of recognition from people who have small children here. So we're here. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing. Christians around the world in different circumstances are joining together to do that today. But maybe for you, the resurrection isn't something that you think about every week. Perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Perhaps you believe some aspects of Christian claims, but you have reservations about following Jesus wholeheartedly. Well, I want to say if that's you, it's wonderful you're here. Thanks for coming. Great to have you. And probably people in your situation will typically have two questions. The first one is this. Did the resurrection really happen? And secondly, if it did happen, what would it mean for my life? So 
if that's you, today's passage is going to be addressing those two questions head on. So we've just had a reading from the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Greece, a town called Corinth. And he has a whole long chapter, 58 verses, all about the resurrection. We've just had a little bit from the beginning and a little bit from the end. And if you look down at your sheet at the first eight verses, the the major point that Paul is making in those eight verses is a really simple one, and it's this. The resurrection happened. The resurrection happened. So Christianity is founded upon an extraordinary claim, isn't it? The claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. As such, historical events are at the heart of what Christians believe. If you look down at verses 3 and 4 on your sheet, you'll see that Paul is saying there that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he was really raised to life on the third day. And Paul means that in a literal way. He doesn't mean that Jesus was raised in some kind of philosophical or metaphorical or spiritual sense. He means Jesus was raised bodily so that you could see him, so that you could talk with him, so that he could eat, so that he could even be touched It's a bold claim, but did it really happen? Now, Christians believe that the Bible is inspired by God and fundamentally reliable because of that, but maybe you're not completely convinced of that. And I want to say to you that even if you don't trust the Bible at this point, there's a huge amount of evidence that means you should take very seriously the claim that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. So we're going to consider some of that evidence And in setting the scene, I want to say three things which are very widely accepted, even amongst many non-Christian scholars. And these three elements are this. Firstly, there really was an empty tomb in which Jesus had lain. There really was an empty tomb. Secondly, there really were eyewitnesses who claimed they had seen Jesus. And thirdly, a movement came about, the church, which had at its heart the claim that Jesus Christ had been bodily raised. So those three things are widely accepted. And we have a question to answer. How did those three things come about? How do we explain the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, and the birth of the church? And Paul, in our passage today, and the claim of Christians throughout the century, is you explain it by this, Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. But perhaps you're not convinced about that. And you might have one of four common objections. So we're going to look at these four objections briefly. And the first objection to the claim that Christ rose from the dead is this. The disciples were deluded. And the argument goes a little bit like this. The disciples knew Jesus predicted he would rise. And not long after he died, some of them may have had personal spiritual experiences of conviction or of forgiveness, which... uh, made them take hold in their minds of the idea that Jesus had risen, even though there wasn't really any evidence for that. And the argument goes that they then spread the message amongst other disciples, and this idea somehow took hold. So that's the objection. The disciples were just deluded. But I think this theory against the Christian claim of the resurrection has a lot of problems. Firstly, there's actually no positive evidence for it, and it flies in the face of everything the New Testament says about the resurrection. Secondly, it leaves open the question of the empty tomb. If that theory is correct, what did happen to Jesus' body? And in fact, I think if we look at the evidence, we'll say there was no group with both the means and the motive to steal Jesus' body and to keep it quiet. 
The third problem with this objection is that the first century theological mindset of Jesus' followers really had no conception that a single individual could rise from the dead. Some of you might know the, the excellent biblical scholar N.T. Wright, who's done a lot of work on the resurrection, and he's argued very compellingly that for Jesus' disciples, there really would have been zero conception that Jesus could rise from the dead. They did have an expectation of resurrection, but that was an expectation of resurrection at the end of all things, when all the righteous would be raised, when justice would flow like a mighty river, where the lion would lie next to the lamb. But for a single person to rise in the middle of history, they had no conception of that at all. The fourth problem with this theory is that just on a human, psychological level, if you put yourself in those disciples' shoes, they'd just seen their leader brutally executed. Their movement had been scattered. And I think you'll probably agree it's very difficult to imagine them just on the basis of a few personal spiritual experiences starting forcefully to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, even to the point of being willing to die for it. And I think that view is strengthened when we look a bit wider in history, because in the years after and before Jesus' ministry, there were several other Jewish messianic movements um, that had their leaders killed. And in none of those instances do we find any claim at all that their leader had risen again. That just wasn't in the playbook at all. So I think we have to reject the idea that the disciples were simply deluded into thinking that Jesus had risen. Well, there's a second objection that people sometimes make, and it's this. They say the resurrection stories were invented later, perhaps towards the end of the first century, different leaders in the church, different writers thought they needed to embellish the story, to expand the story of the church's foundation a little bit. So they came up with this notion that Jesus had been raised bodily, but that it wasn't really held at the time. And I think if we look at this fairly, that argument doesn't have much force either. If you look at the little piece of paper in your hands with the reading on it, that's taken from 1 Corinthians, which most scholars think was written 15 to 20 years after Jesus died. So to put that concretely, it's like looking back from this vantage point at a period between 2002 and 2007. And I know some of you students, that sounds like ancient history when you were just little children. But trust me, it's not that long ago. Many of us can remember that period extremely well. So Paul was writing down here in 1 Corinthians about events that were very recent. If you look down at verse 3, you'll notice Paul says that he's passing on teaching that he himself received. And when he uses the language of received, he's making clear that he's not making up this stuff himself. He's writing down in his letter established Christian teaching. So by the time Paul came to write this letter, 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus, there already existed established Christian convictions that Jesus really had died and really had been raised bodily. So I think we just have to reject the objection to the resurrection that says that the stories of the resurrection came about much later after the event. Then there's a third objection that sometimes people have to the Christian claim, the Bible's claim, that Jesus was raised bodily, and that's to say, well, you can't really trust the biblical accounts because they're biased, essentially. And it's true, of course, isn't it? If you look at the Gospels, if you look at the writings of Paul or Peter, they are obviously trying to make spiritual 
points. That's uncontested. But that doesn't mean that their recording of history can simply be dismissed. After all, everyone records history from a certain perspective. No one is completely neutral about what they're writing. And in fact, it's a very ideological position to say that a particular account should be rejected just because it's written by someone with religious convictions. And I think if we dive in and dig into some of the, the Gospels in a bit more detail, we'll see that many of them have marks of authenticity which show that they are real historical accounts and not just works of religious propaganda. And let me give you a few thoughts about marks of authenticity in the Gospels. So firstly, each Gospel tells us that women were the first people to encounter the, the, the empty tomb. Women were the first people to encounter the empty tomb. And sad to say, in those days, women typically had much lower social status than men. And the Jewish uh, historian Josephus records that women's testimony was not even admissible in Jewish courts of law. So if the resurrection stories were invented to uh, be works of bias or propaganda, it would have been very natural for the gospel writers just to push the women out of it so as to make those accounts more believable to a first century audience. But if you read the Gospels, you'll see in each of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are the women, front and center, right at the very beginning. And I think the most plausible reason for that is because the women actually were there when Jesus' empty tomb was encountered. And I think this is a good piece of evidence to show us that the Gospel accounts are historically reliable, that those Gospel writers were concerned with writing down what had actually happened not just making things that would appeal to their audience. A second authentic mark in the Gospels is that they record the failings of the disciples. And that's very striking if you read the Gospels. It shows the disciples as denying Jesus, as deserting him, as slow-witted, as uh, jealous, as vain, as refusing at first in some instances to believe the resurrection was real. And I think a biased writer of religious propaganda wouldn't want to highlight the failings of the first leaders of the church. And again, the most plausible reason for including those things is because the disciples actually had those failings. And so again, we see the gospel writers were concerned with recording things as they really were. Thirdly, the gospel accounts all portray the resurrection in slightly different ways. Now, if I were to ask four of you to tell me afterwards what happened in the service today, I think what you'd come back with is four different accounts which have substantial overlaps but differences of detail. Perhaps some of you are musicians and you'd comment about who was in the band and the songs that were sung. Or maybe some of you are particularly into fashion and you'd, you'd notice some, you know, something that someone was wearing. Or maybe you've come with Andrew or Katie and of course you'd focus on their testimony and their baptism in telling the story. And what we have in the Gospels is four accounts that have very substantial agreement on significant points and have some differences in terms of the detail. And I think the best way of explaining that is by saying that the Gospels drew on different eyewitness sources which focused on slightly different things. And again, like our little example shows, that gives the hallmark of authentic historical writing rather than works of, of bias. And a final point on this, the style of the gospel accounts points towards authentic testimony as well. Maybe some of you are studying 
English at university, and you can really dive into the detail on this. But people who, who have studied this point point out a few things. They say, for example, it's striking that the accounts of the resurrection have very little biblical illusion. They portray Jesus actually in quite a restrained way rather than shining like a star or anything like that. It's quite restrained. They provide careful details about the location of where these events happen. They provide historical details, who the Roman governor was, who the owner of the tomb was, who the disciples were, who ordinary people were, like uh, the person who carried Jesus's cross. They're full of those sorts of details. And one excellent uh, historical theologian, Dr. Alistair McGrath, of Oxford University has looked at the New Testament documents, compared them with mythological legendary accounts, and said it's very striking to see the contrast between the New Testament accounts and accounts of legend. Very striking. So I think all of those four points, which are just a very, very quick overview, should give us a lot of confidence that the gospel accounts that tell us about the resurrection of Jesus aren't just works of religious blah, blah, but they're real historical records. And there are many reasons for thinking that. So we've seen three objections. Now there's a fourth objection. The fourth objection is a pretty fundamental one. People don't rise from the dead. And maybe you're willing to discount the first three objections, but you start to have a problem with this one. It's a strong objection. And if it's an objection you have, actually, you're in the same company as the disciples, as first century Jews, as first century Greeks, who all for different reasons didn't imagine it was possible that a single individual in history could rise from the dead. So you're in good company, you might say. And this is an objection, as I said, that stops some people in their tracks. They've heard the evidence. They've seen there's very good reason to believe there was an empty tomb and eyewitnesses' accounts of the risen Jesus. They're aware there's early written testimony that the resurrection happened. They're aware there are multiple independent sources with many authentic marks to show that they're real historical accounts. They're aware that the disciples who had been terrified, hiding for their lives, proclaimed that Jesus really was written, risen in the very city where he had been executed and buried just a few weeks before. They're aware that the authorities weren't able to produce a body to stop these resurrection claims. Um, they're aware that the concept of a resurrected Jesus became absolutely central in the Christian church. And the Christian looks at all of those pieces of evidence and says, hallelujah, Jesus Christ is risen. But maybe for you, you stop and say, well, I don't know what the answer is. It's very puzzling, but people just don't rise from the dead. A couple of thoughts on that. Firstly, even Christians would accept that the resurrection was not an ordinary event. It was a unique event because Jesus Christ was unique. So we're talking about something very specific, something that we wouldn't expect to see repeated again and again uh, in our day necessarily. Secondly, other unique and unrepeated events have happened in history. And it's not a perfect analogy because the resurrection really is unique, but the best analogy I can think of is the moment of creation. Now, however you would describe that, whatever kind of uh, worldview interpretation you'd put upon that, we'd all agree that at the moment when our universe started there was a gathering together of very improbable things that released incredible creative power and force, a unique 
an extraordinary moment. The evidence, I would argue, points very strongly, just pulling these threads together, to Jesus Christ really having been raised from the dead. Nothing, I think, has the same explanatory force. Nothing makes sense of the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, the birth of the church, proclaiming the risen Jesus Christ. And ultimately, I think, as you look at all of this evidence, you reach a point where a worldview might have to shift, might have to enlarge, might have to accommodate a new and unexpected and good reality that Jesus Christ really was raised. So where does that leave you? Where does that leave you? And I think your answer to that question matters because the question of the resurrection isn't just a historical curiosity, but it's profoundly personal for how you live your life. And the claim of the Bible and the conviction of this church is that Jesus Christ really did rise. He really is the Son of God. He really is the one who can save you from judgment. He really is the only one in whom you can find true satisfaction, as Andrew was talking about. He really is the only one who can give you hope for life beyond the grave. So your answer to that question, did Jesus really rise, is about that response to what the Bible claims about true purpose, meaning, satisfaction, destiny, and rescue being found only in Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do with Jesus? And the invitation today, if you're not yet following Jesus, is to respond by putting your trust in him, by accepting his work for you on the cross, by believing in his resurrection, by starting to live wholeheartedly for him. And it could be that God is stirring something in someone's heart here today. And if he is, I would encourage you, don't lose this moment. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. So don't go away from this place. If God is challenging you to put your trust in the risen Jesus without really doing business with him. And I'd love to invite you, if that's you, at the end, come and speak to me. Come and speak with Maffie. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Or maybe you're not quite ready for that. You want to keep looking into things. That's good as well. And we've got some excellent resources at the back. Firstly, we've got a lot of copies of the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the best things you can do is to take that away, to read it, to encounter Jesus for yourself on its pages. We've also got a couple of excellent books. We have The Reason for God by Tim Keller. We have Basic Christianity by John Stott. And they're excellent overviews of the Christian faith. We have some copies there, so take one away with you as our gift. And do keep coming back and wrestling with those questions that you have. And of course, many of us have already encountered Jesus for ourselves. We already believe in the resurrection, and that's wonderful if you do. But these last couple of years have been tough for many of us, haven't they? Maybe during COVID, you lost a bit of your spiritual freshness. You began to doubt whether it was all really worth it. You stopped being wholehearted in following Jesus. Perhaps Jesus became just one interest amongst others in your life. Or perhaps you're serving actively in the church. You're giving a lot and you're just tired. You're worn out and you're tempted to say, ah, I'll just take a step back 
and stop being quite so wholehearted in following the risen Jesus. Well, I want to point out for you the very last verse on your sheet. And this last verse, verse 58, is a culmination of an extraordinarily majestic, detailed, multifaceted chapter all about the resurrection that Paul has written there in 1 Corinthians 15. And he draws together all of the implications of the resurrection in what he says in verse 58 when he writes this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Easter is a time of fresh starts and fresh hope, isn't it? And my encouragement, if you're already following Jesus, my encouragement today is that you decide to give yourself again to God and to his work, to commit to stand firm, to use the language of the passage, to pray that God would give you a deeper grasp and faith in the reality of the resurrection, to pray that God would give you the strength and the faith to bring in that kingdom of the risen Jesus in every part of your life, in your work, in your study, in your relationships, in your free time, in your personal thoughts and personal character development, in holding out that good news to other people. And the verse has a wonderful promise too, doesn't it? Look down again and you'll see at the end, Paul says this, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God who knows all things, God who raised Christ from the dead, sees all things and every effort that we make to live for him, to put him first, is not in vain. Some of you might know the late Australian evangelist John Chapman or Chapo. And Chapo once related uh, how he dealt with moments of doubt and discouragement in his own life. So he tells this story. He said, so when I get out of bed in the morning, I swing my legs over the side of the bed and I've just had enough of being a Christian. I say to myself, Chapo, have you had any fresh evidence that Jesus Christ did not live? No, Chapo, I haven't. And Chapo, have you had any fresh evidence that Jesus Christ didn't die for you, didn't rise from the dead, didn't promise to come back again? No, Chapo, I haven't. Well, Chapo, he concluded to himself, keep going. It's obviously the best thing to do. So let's keep going in serving our resurrected King, Jesus. Amen.